0: As many of you know, my wife and I have four sons, and years ago, around the time that this picture was taken, we do have a picture coming up, yeah, so uh, (laughs) clearly dad got a hold of the product and the hairdryer. but around the time that this picture was taken, uh, Jake, I'm going to talk about him, he's the blonde in that picture, but uh, around the time this picture was taken, we had a family trip to Silver Dollar City. In Branson, Missouri. We were having a great day, and at one point we found our way to the Fireman's Landing Ball Pit. And it's changed over the years, but basically it's a two story ball pit attraction. And what I personally loved the most is that you could load these air cannons with the balls from the ball pit and shoot balls at all the children as they're running around screaming and creating mayhem. It's just super therapeutic, pinging these balls off small humans as they're running around. Anyway, the six of us, we were scattered throughout this uh, basically this two-story ball pit, and we were scattered throughout this. But at some point, I realized that I hadn't seen our second son, Jake, in a while. So I found his brothers and said, hey, have you seen Jake? And they said they hadn't. And I found my wife, Shauna. said, have you seen Jake? She said she hadn't. And, of course, all the moms listening to me know that immediately her mommy instincts kicked in, right? So very quickly, we began scouring the levels of this. And we met up at the top. And we realized that he was gone. And at one of those moments... Uh, as a parent where every horrible thing you've ever read as a parent about kids being kidnapped and trafficked and it's like all rushes to your mind and something primal kicks in and i quickly ran to a worker who had a walkie-talkie and i told them that our son was missing and that they they needed to shut the park down they needed to do it now and the employee clearly well trained calm stayed calm asked for a description of our son got on the walkie communicated it to all the employees in the park. And then we waited with this employee by our side. And every passing second was like an hour. And with our imaginations running wild, that somebody had gotten him out of the park before we had noticed that he was missing and what we were going to do. And again, what felt like an hour was probably just about seven or 10 minutes. But finally, the walkie chimed and someone said, we have him and we're headed your way. And then a couple minutes later, we saw him, he's walking up, holding this employee's hand, big old smile on his face, eating something delicious that the employee got for them. And in that moment, you can imagine all the emotions that come rushing in in that moment. And it turned out that he couldn't find us in fireman's landing. And so he went outside the attraction and looked for us. He got lost. Now, let me ask a dumb question. You don't have to be a parent to know the answer. Were we mad when we got him back safe? No. I mean, we were filled with relief. Like for a moment, we, like, we thought we had lost our son, and now he was found. Let me ask something else. What do you think I was prepared to do to find my lost child? Anything. I was prepared to create such a scene that they probably would have thrown me in jail. Because I was going to get everyone. I was going to get the park shut down, the parking lot shut down. I was going to get every employee, every person there, every guest searching for my child until he was found and back safe with me, with his family. Some of you have seen the 2008 movie, Taken about a father whose daughter is kidnapped by traffickers, and the movie is about the father, an ex-CIA officer, hunting down every individual slightly connected to the abduction of his daughter until he finds her, and no thing and nobody was going to stand in his way. In fact, many of you know how to finish this. If you let my daughter go now, that will be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you, and I will kill you. You bunch of heathens, you know. So, see, I, I, I'm old enough, and see, I'm old enough. I grew up in the generation that every day saw pictures of missing children on the sides of milk cartons, with parents somewhere dealing with the devastating, gut-wrenching, unimaginable terror and distress of having a child that they love taken from them. Now I want you to, to sit in the emotion the emotion of everything i've described thus far because that's just a glimpse of what this gathering of documents is about to biblia which just simply means the books we refer to it as the bible this is a gathering of 66 books written by over by 40 different authors over a period of 2000 years on three different continents in three different languages, and amazingly, all telling one singular story about God's pursuit, about a creator who lost his prized creation, and instead of starting over, pursued and paid a high price to get it back, it's a father, his children, who made an unfortunate decision that fractured the bridge in the relationship between them and God, between us and God. But God refused to give up on his lost children. This one gathering of 66 books over 2,000 years, telling one singular story through history, through biography, through autobiography, through short story, through narrative or prose and poetry, wisdom literature. And the one story can be summed up in one simple word. And that word is redemption. Redemption is to buy something back. Redemption is to regain possession of something by payment. And from Genesis to Revelation, we discover that uh, redemption is the core theme that connects it all. That at the beginning of time, as we're going to see next week, after Adam and Eve sinned, and we're going to talk about whether or not we can take Adam and Eve seriously and why, but Adam and Eve sinned, and it created the need for redemption and as Adam and Eve are departing the garden, even after rejecting God, God provides them coverings for their nakedness, animal skins. And in doing so, he's foreshadowed that he has not given up on this prodigal race. But to fix what was broken would require sacrifice. And then many, many years later, he creates a nation. A nation that finds itself in captivity to Egypt, and the Egyptian rule, and God raises up a leader, Moses, and he says to Moses, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and here's our word, I will redeem them with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. So God promises from the very beginning of his history with a nation that he is a God who is a redeemer, who will physically and literally redeem them. And then later on, David, in recounting this episode, says, and who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem a people for himself, and to make a name for himself, and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out the nations and their gods from before your people who you redeemed from Egypt. And early on in the life of these people God that God loved, God positioned himself to be a redeemer. And in these incredible acts and miracles that we read about in the book of Exodus, God demonstrates for all the world to see, when I am committed to a people I will go to great lengths to redeem them, to free them. And as the Bible moves on, it becomes that God becomes clear that God is not just about or committed to physical redemption, but to spiritual redemption as well. The psalmist writes it this way: He himself will redeem Israel, not from captivity, but from all their sins. And then God, in this period of history, begins to establish himself not simply as the physical redeemer, the redeemer of nations, but a personal redeemer of individual people of their sins. And then David really captured this when he said, may these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. And then he gets really personal. My Lord, my rock, and my redeemer, And David seems to be one of the first people to recognize that God, awesome God, wants to actually move into our personal lives and be a personal redeemer. And then hundreds and hundreds of years later, Jesus was born. And just before his birth, John the Baptist's father... Recognized that the long awaited Redeemer was about to come to earth. And here's what the father of John the Baptist said, Zechariah said. Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets long ago, that there will come. There will be one that will come to deliver us from our sins and to set us in a right relationship with God. And then the Apostle Paul, he catches us up and brings us to where we are today. And he says, in him, Jesus, we, that's us, we have a redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. And here we are, some 4,000 years later after this first relationship was broken and God made provision for Adam and Eve. And we'll see that we are part of the bigger story of the redemption of Christ, a redemption found in Christ that was promised long ago. Redemption, the offer of forgiveness of sins, of reconciliation with God. And that redemption doesn't somehow just end on this earth. That there is more to this life than this life which the majority of humans believe. The Apostle Paul points us to the future saying, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. That is that the world is longing or hoping for something better than the current state of the world. And we all as a human race, we know even if you don't believe in God, if your faith is not there, just we know this is not how things should be. And the human race has longed for a better world. Paul says not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the spirit, that we those that follow Jesus, as they put their faith in Him, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption, as son into sonship, daughtership, the redemption of our bodies. For this hope we were saved. And it's like yes, age and gravity, doing its worst. It gets redeemed someday. We're told there's a final chapter where we will stand face to face with God and our Lord Jesus and that there will be a time in history that we will be literally and physically changed and literally live in the presence of God and in that day the final chapter of redemption and a new heaven and a new earth will be written but in the meantime we are caught between the last chapter and the one that we live in 66 books we call it the bible But it's a library of books written over a period of 2,000 years by authors who, other than rare exceptions, did not know one another. And it tells one consistent singular story of God, of a God, a father, a king, an artist, who went to great lengths to buy back stolen treasure, to win back his prodigal children, and to win the love of those who actually should serve him. One story, and it's the story of us. It's the story of you. So let me tell you what we're going to do for the next few weeks. And I have looked so forward to this. I've looked forward to this for months. Because the truth is that there are many, as I've had conversations, there are many that have never been told how this all fits together. And you have understandable questions and understandably reconcile, you know, the God of the Old Testament that seems like a bloodthirsty tyrant with the kind of the grandfatherly loving God of the New Testament. And it just seems disjointed and contradictory. And at times, let's just be honest, it's offensive. And I want to help you with that because, again, knowing how this all fits together and understanding the narrative, understanding how you fit into this epic narrative and how it connects to your day-to-day life affects everything in your life. So for the next next few weeks, we're going to break the story of redemption down into eight chapters. It could be more, it could be less, uh, but we're going to go for eight for the sake of time and for the sake of communication. And we're going to break it down to eight different people, and we're going to associate a different word for each of those people. And I'm telling you this up front so that you've got a sense of where we're headed. And for those of you that you've got friends and family, they're unchurched, they're de-churched, they aren't Christians, but they're curious, they're open to spiritual conversations. This will help you know why this is a great time to invite them to just come sit with you, offer them lunch, tell them they'll meet somebody cute, whatever you got to do. Today I'm going to teach you the eight people and the eight words. And just so you know, especially if you're new, this is a little bit different than what we normally do but this isn't exactly a normal series and my goal my goal is that by the end of these eight weeks that you'll be able to get your arms around this gathering of documents and that every time you open it or you open your bible app every time you read it you talk about it talk about it with your friends or your family you'll understand how it all fits together and you'll understand that it is just one story and it's your story So this morning, I want to teach you the eight names and the one word to associate with each of these eight names and these eight people. And again, this is a little bit different. You're going to need to be courageous and participate. Men, I know this is way out of your comfort zone, but you can do this. I'm going to give you the first four names. Most of you know them. You've heard of these names. And then I'm going to give you the names, and I want to say them out loud, okay? So the names are Adam, Abraham, Moses, and David, okay? So say those words out loud with me. Ready? Ready? Adam, Abraham, Moses, and David. Okay, those are the first four key people. And the word that we're going to associate with Adam is the word potential. So Adam, potential. Say that with me. Adam, potential. Adam was the first. He was the first to weigh good and bad. He was the first to weigh right from wrong, evil, from holiness. And think of the potential this man had because his future was us. He would determine our destiny, but his legacy was one of making the wrong decision. I mean, think of the potential that he had as he determined what he was going to do with temptation and whether or not to do the one thing that God told him not to do. We're going to talk about that in detail next week. The next person is Abraham. And it's an incredible story. And rather than start over or recreate, God decides to move into a big mess and bring order out of chaos. And to do that, he chooses a man named Abraham, and he makes Abraham a promise. So that's the word, Abraham promise. Would you say that with me? Abraham promise. And he says to Abraham, not based on anything that you've done, but just because I want to, purely because I've chosen you. I'm going to make you three promises. The first promise is that everybody is going to know your name. The second promise is, he says, I'm going to make you a nation. Which is crazy because, again, his, he and his wife were really, really old, and they had no children. And number three, and most importantly, every family on earth will be blessed through you. And Adam had no idea what this meant. And it just seemed impossible. And yet God took him out and said, I want you to look up at the star's the sky. As many stars as you can see, so will be the number of your descendants through the generations. And again, he didn't know the rest of the story. But if you fast forward to today, 55% of the world's population, 4.3 billion people that are alive today, trace their religious heritage back to Abraham. And then we come to Moses. The word associated with Moses is the word Passover. So you've been doing great. Say that with me. Moses, Passover. The word Passover. This, this was so significant. Because when God showed up on the scene with Moses, there were no Ten Commandments. There was no law. Nobody knew anything about God. Nobody knew anything about God or His holiness or any of that. God hadn't spoken in over 400 years to His people. And he shows up and he says to the nation of Israel, I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to redeem you physically from Egyptian slavery. And I'm going to do it in such a way that it is going to get the world's attention. They will be in awe of my power. And in doing this, I will demonstrate to the world a visual character, a a, a visual of my character and my nature. That I am a God of mercy and I am a God of justice that I'm a God of extreme power, and that I'm a God of extreme love. And I will bring you out from captivity. And on the evening before that begins, I'm going to send an angel throughout the land of Egypt that's going to kill every firstborn. And the only way to survive is not by doing good, but by killing a lamb and taking the blood of that lamb and putting it over the the top of the door and along the doorposts at the sides, simply as a symbol of your faith in me. And they celebrated their first Passover, and God demonstrated not only his power, but he demonstrated his mercy and his love for his chosen people. So Adam, potential. Abraham, promise. Moses, Passover. And then David is our fourth person. We're told that David was a man after God's own heart. What's fascinating is that he was, had, was a man after God's own heart his entire life. And so we're going to associate with David the word passion. So if you would say those two words with me. David, passion. See, he lived in a religious world where there was just the law and temples and bowing and sacrifices and rituals. But David realized what God was really after. It was a relationship. And David had a passion for God. And he realized God had given the law not as a way to get to God, but as a way for God to protect us from the things that we needed protecting from. So David loved God and he loved the law and he left us all kinds of literature that are like love songs and love letters to God. And it's clear, it's clear that David understood God in a way that the majority of us just don't. And so we're going to look at his life as it relates to us. So Adam, potential. Abraham, promise. Moses, Passover. David, passion. And the next guy you know nothing about. His name is Zedekiah. And Zedekiah is going to represent that part of the Bible that is known as the stories of the kings and the writings of the prophets. Now, it's a story of a nation that God has blessed over and over and over again, and they just decide, God, we just don't need you anymore. We don't want you as the boss. We don't need you. And the word that we're going to associate with Zedekiah is the word pride. So let's say those two words together. Zedekiah, pride. Basically, God, I don't need you anymore. And yet God is patient. And he sends prophets over and over again to say, hey, turn back to God. Turn back to me. I'll be merciful. God is merciful. God is a God of grace. He's a God who has compassion on his people. But there comes a line that you finally reach. And because I'm a good father, because I love you, I'm going to be forced to discipline you. And because he's a good father, God finally said, enough's enough. The warnings are over. You're going to be disciplined for a period of time, but but after this period of discipline is over, I will once again redeem you because I'm a father who is unwavering to do whatever it takes to reconnect with my children and a king who desperately wants a relationship with my people. And what we learn is discipline is not payback. Discipline is to win us back, just like a good parent with their child. Many of you could say, that's my story. I can. I put God at an arm's distance at best, and then I went through a very, very difficult time, and this would be some of your stories, a very, very difficult time that was at least partially of my own making. And you know what? Through that difficult time, God brought me back. I'm back. And as I look back, I can see that God wasn't paying me back. He was trying to win me back, trying to bring me back. And there's a lesson there for each of us as we begin to understand the discipline of God. So Zedekiah Pride, the next person we're going to talk about is Jesus and the word that we're going to associate with Jesus is the word payment. So say that with me. Jesus payment. And as we've done so many times here, we're going to look, we're going to look at what Jesus did on the cross, but not simply as an isolated event, but as it is part of a sequence that began all the way back in the beginning in the garden. The coming of Christ was the culmination of of the story of redemption, that when God said to Abraham, Abraham, every family on earth will be blessed because of you. God knew that every family would be blessed through the coming of Christ. And even though we are about 2,000 years, there's about 2,000 years separating these two incidents, everything between Abraham and the coming of Christ were part of were part of a sequence, sequence of events of God, part of God's redeeming mankind for himself. So we're going to look at the redeeming work of Christ. The next name you need to remember is Chad. No. Okay, the person we're going to talk about that week is you. Okay, because you, you are part of the story. This is your story. You are in the script. And in this church age, we are the ones who benefit from what Christ did on the cross. And this is the driving reason that we're doing this series that all of us might truly understand and comprehend the context of our lives as it connects to this grander, greater narrative, all that came before and all that is yet to come, so that we can see how it all pieces together and so we can have hope. So that the word we're going to associate with our names is the word patience. So for me, it's Chad Patience. So you say your name and then Patience. Ready? Chad Patience. Because there's something in you and there's something in me that says, God, why don't you hurry? Okay, why don't you hurry up? Move faster. Why don't you do it now? Why don't you just end suffering? Why don't you answer my prayer? And God's response is, you you need to understand. You, You need to understand that I'm the God who, when sin entered the world, the first thing that I did was choose a man who had no children. I took him out of the place where he had any influence and I decided to start a nation. I'm the God who doesn't look at the second hand, the minute hand, the hour hand. I'm not even the God that looks at the pages on the calendar. I'm the God who works throughout generations. And if you could understand all that went on before you to bring you to a place where you could know and understand my redemption and my forgiveness of your sins, if you could truly understand it would enable you to be patient. Because you've benefited from 4,000 years of history and God's intervention that has gone before you. I am the God who transcends space and time. And so from your vantage point, you're working so hard, but you're not able to understand all of the intricate details that connect to billions of other intricate details that ripple through time and ripple through lives and generations and how there is another plane of existence, that there is more to this life than this life. Because what happens is if we begin to understand the context of our lives, our little lives in the midst of all that, we're humbled because we realize we're a vapor. We're honored because we realize all that God has done on our behalf, for our benefit, for all of man and womankind. We're humbled, we're honored, and we're hopeful because see, we see in Abraham, God is a God who always keeps his promises. And if God honored those promises, then He's a God we can put our trust in. If He was faithful then, He'll be faithful now. He is a God who has promised us that one day we will stand in His presence and that every tear will be dried from our eye. Every hope, every dream, everything we hoped would be true about Him will come true. And that every evil and every injustice, and please hear me on this, every evil every injustice, even the ones that we read about in the Old Testament, even ones ordered and sanctioned by God that we can find so offensive, it will somehow be made right in a way we have yet to understand. So for now, we must be patient. So Zedekiah, pride, Jesus, payment, Chad, patience. And the last person we're going to talk about is God. And the word we're going to associate with God is the word presence. So let's say those two words, God, presence, that he's going to be with us, that again, there's going to come a day that he is going to wipe away every tear from every eye. This is one of the most intimate things we would ever allow someone else to do, to wipe tears from our eyes. And death shall be no more, and there shall be no more mourning or crying or pain ever again. That's the promise of Revelation. The culmination of the redemption story is God dwelling with man. That the final chapter in life to come will be so indescribably wonderful that if we really understood it, we would be patient knowing the context of our lives and our salvation. Here's the thing. You may not believe it's true, but you should want it to be true. That this one story, over 40 people who did not know each other over 2,000 years writing this one story that's as relevant today as it was in the days it was written. So Adam, potential. Abraham, promise. Moses, Passover. David, passion. Zedekiah, pride. Jesus, payment. Chad, patience. God, presence. Now, if you're listening, if you're here, you're listening today, and you struggle with the reliability or the relevance of the Bible, you just don't believe any of it, you struggle to believe it, you struggle to believe any of it's true, here's what I know. Had I been raised the way that you were raised and experienced the things that you've experienced in your life, I am sure I would think just like you think. You also need to know, when we began New Life almost six years ago, we had you specifically in mind. You, your questions, your skepticisms, your doubts. We launched New Life to be a faith community where you can belong before you believe anything. It's just a place where if you are open to exploring or having spiritual conversations, how it pertains to -to day-to-day life, if in fact there's more to this life than this life, then this is the perfect place to be. I just want to say this. In my life, I have found that there are two, primarily two kinds of people who don't put much stock in, in the Bible. This is just an observation. One group is the group who was raised in the church, and they had this crammed down their throat. Like you had to read it, you had to memorize it, you know, you had to memorize maybe as a translation you struggled to understand. Like I was given a Bible at a young age. It was like King James and Living Bible. If you know anything, it's like, like, just like how does this go together? So, one group's raised in church. Uh, maybe it's a translation you struggle to understand. Maybe there are just lots of additional rules that, like, you can't find any. Like, why can't I dance? Why can't I drink? Because drinking might lead to dancing. What just what? Maybe you saw hypocrisy in the church. Maybe you saw hypocrisy in your family. And by the time you were 17, 18, 20, headed for college, it's like, you know what? I'm just done. I'm just done with all of it. It was behind you. And you have associated this book with a culture. That for some of you, this happened or got reinforced over the past five or six years. Like there's just things that you saw like in the Christian world and the evangelical world and like politics and social justice and COVID and you think that cannot possibly be what Jesus meant. But because you don't want to have anything to do with the culture, over time you develop some arguments as to why you believe that the Bible isn't true. trustworthy. But if I were to ask you, you, do you believe the Bible is true? you You wouldn't tell me about the way that you were raised. You would talk to me about like, you know, how old is the earth and people believe that and flood theory and creation and evolution and the God delusion and recent events and all these arguments you picked up through the years as to why you don't put much stock in this. But if you're honest, you'd say my problem, my problem didn't begin when I became such an academic person or because I really studied it so hard. My problems began because of what I experienced or what I observed. It happened or an experience I had in a church or with a pastor or an experience I had with a group of church leaders or in my family. In other words, there was an experience that turned me off. It wasn't really about the Bible. It was the culture in which I was exposed to the Bible there's another group of you possibly listening and you're just kind of opposed to this being true. And you've got four or five reasons as to why like this just can't be, but the, the the truth is you've never read it. You've heard stories, you've heard other people talk about it, you may have some basic idea of God and Noah and the ark and you hear this weird fairy tale, Adam and Eve running around a garden naked and there's a talking snake and an apple like the original naked and afraid. It's just, In other words, you've heard of most of these people, you've read these places, you know bits and pieces, you've heard people and politicians and uh, social media quotes on it, you have kind of a general idea like don't judge and Ten Commandments, but the fact is you've never really read it, but you would say like I'm just, I absolutely believe it can't be true, it can't be trusted, but based on what? Based on what other people have said or what they've told you it means? See, here's my hope and my challenge, whether you're a skeptic or you've been a believer for many years. Maybe it's been a long time since you really spent time in the text that over the next few weeks that whatever baggage that you may have from the past that you may carry with you, or you know, I've already, I've already read all this, I read it sometime, you know, years ago, that you would leverage this opportunity to engage or re-engage it like never before. For those of you that were raised in a culture that turned you off to the Bible, please don't make the mistake of allowing some Bad behaving Christians or a bad experience turn you off to Christ and this gathering of documents that we call the books, the Bible. If you get a bad haircut, you don't stop getting haircuts. You just find somebody else to do it. You have a bad experience with a doctor, you don't give up on medicine. You just give up on that doctor. So why would we turn our backs on a book because of a bad experience or because someone used it as a club to beat you up emotionally? And just know I can understand all that because I've experienced it. I understand the emotions, the fear, the legalism, the abuse, all this stuff. All I ask is just over the next few weeks that you would set that potential baggage to the side for a moment and just engage with fresh eyes and in a community where your doubts, your questions, your struggles, your skepticism are welcome. So for the next few weeks, would all of you have the courage and to make the time, maybe first thing in the morning, to go through this, to begin to read, to pick, to pick up a hard copy, this thing made out of paper, get the U-version Bible app, I highly recommend that, but to begin picking up and reading it as we go through it together, saying, I want to know the story of redemption. And in the end, if you're unmoved, if you're unchanged, you just remain just as skeptical, that's okay but at least you did your own research and your own homework to know exactly what it is that you're choosing to reject. And for the rest of you, that this will help you to connect or reconnect some dots. And for some of you, Bible study has been a big part of your life, so this will just be refresher, renewal, and to make life simple and consistent, I just, I recommend what's called the New International Version, or the NIV for short. It's not that other translations conflict with one another. It's some that, for example, are more transliterations. And when you transliterate a language, it's bumpier, it's harder to read. You can't go wrong with the NIV. Again, I always recommend the Version Bible app for your phone, for your device, if you prefer that. And if you got, want to get really crazy, come talk to me after service. I have a dramatized audio version that I personally love to listen to. I listen to it almost every day. So you get like the bleeding of goats in the background. and all. I'm just saying it, it helps, all right? But all I ask for you to do is to engage the text for the next few weeks to start to read it as we engage specific people and their stories in context. Because my hope for you is to discover or rediscover that this story is about you. This story is about me. This is the story of God who loved you so much that he went on a quest that began 4,000 years ago to create a context where you could come to know him and to have a hope and to have a future for you and for the next generation. And because of my experience and the experience of so many others, I believe that if you will read it with fresh eyes from a fresh perspective, you will discover important life-altering insights about God and about yourself. And so that's why we're going to pick it apart for the next eight weeks. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful that we have the documents that we have. We we know there there were other letters written, other things were written. I'm just so thankful for what we do have. And so, Father, I pray for myself, for everybody that's going to engage over the next few weeks, that, Father, that you would give us something we read about often in Scripture, ears to hear, eyes to see, and that you will help us to understand. Understand you, understand your son, understand what you've been doing in history, and understand that, that you can be trusted. I pray for everyone listening to me that has experienced wounds, church hurt, had this group of texts used as a club against them, that Father, that you would create healing in them, and give them a glimmer of hope that they may discover a version of you and a version of your word that represents reality and not some character that was crammed down their throat or used to shame them. So, Father, I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.